Hello everyone, this is Sarah and today we have a rebroadcast of the podcast episode number 64. I really enjoyed the conversation with Catherine and it's really, really inspiring. And that's why I thought, let's bring some of the episodes back because we have a lot of new people here. So enjoy the show and let me know what you think. The beaches there were some of the most untouched, beautiful beaches I've ever experienced in my entire life. Um, and they wanted to develop those for tourism. And so these people's lives are at risk for a lot of different reasons. Um, and so I wanted to go there and just sort of observe and give these people a voice of like, do they want the road? Do they not want the road? But I had to do that in a very um, neutral sort of way because it was very controversial. The two mayors prior to me arriving had been assassinated for this very reason. Hello and welcome! This is Sarah and I'll take you on my global discovery journey through all the stereotypes, fun stories, but also global struggles. What do you have to do with it? Well, you're actually more global than you think. Each episode we will unpack what it takes for all of us to be part of this global world. Are you ready? This is the How To Be Global podcast. Hello and welcome How To Be Global podcast listeners. Today, I have another amazing guest from Canada. Her name is Catherine, and she had an amazing experience some years ago, and she actually wrote a book about it. And we're going to talk about this experience, what she learned, and how it really changed her mind today in the show. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat. Me too. So I already said you had an amazing experience. I didn't kind of unreal what it was. So can you tell the listeners who you are? I mean, you're based in Canada, but what this experience was. Yeah. So back in 2014, um, I traveled to the Philippines as part of, as part of my master's research. So I went there for about three months. Um, I was in a master's program for communications at Royal Roads University in Victoria, Canada. Um, and so it was a kind of an immersion uh, research project where I actually went and lived uh, in a remote village with no running water, no electricity, no internet, nothing like that. Um, for about six to eight weeks, I was in the field, um, just living with the people, getting to know who they were, and um, just observing their life and, and what made them, them different and unique. I, I mean, I met Catherine online again, and I was so inspired by her story because Catherine and I, I mean, everybody knows that I grew up in Germany and you grew up in Canada, which is a very secure place. Everything is kind of, quote, in place, right? You have running water, you have a house, you have food all the time. And then for you going to a very remote area, um, how was the first experience actually getting there? Because in the, in the pre-call, Catherine told me that to even get there, it's not like an unusual I book an airplane ticket procedure. <laughs> not not even remotely close to that. Yeah, it was really eye-opening to me, actually, because I had, because I am from Canada and I've traveled all over the world. Philippines isn't just the only place that I've been, but, um, and so I've been on international flights where you have like really nice comfy seats, you book your ticket, you get like confirmation via email, all of that stuff. And it's not like that in the Philippines or at least to get to this particular region. So this particular region is in, um, 
Luzon and it's in a, like I said, a remote area. And so there's only really two ways of getting there. Well, two ways for most people. Um, mm-hmm. Some people walk, but we, I would never do the walk. <laughs> so it's either by boat, which is um, just an open boat. They don't recommend it for foreigners because it's like a 12 hour ride, but it could be longer depending on weather. And you'll probably just end up burning. There's no food, nothing on this boat. And then oh, wow. also a small flight. Yeah. So basically what I had to do was go to the main airport in Tegigarau, which is in northern Luzon. And I had to um, go to the airport and wait in line and hopefully get on the flight. And it only um, had seats for six people. And the people going back to their villages or communities were always priority. And so it took me actually um, two attempts to get into that region. Um, and that's like waiting for like a couple hours at an airport and they, your plane ticket is just a written, like they got, they just signed it. Like it was just a off a loose leaf piece of paper where you, they just signed yeah. it that you were able to go on that flight. But we would sit at the airport for like my translator and I, it was, um, I want to say like almost five to six hours the one day just waiting. And then the flight isn't scheduled like a normal flight. It leaves when the runway is open when they have a break in the runway. And so there's no specific Mm -hmm. time that it takes off. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like this is already an adventure before it even started properly, right? So imagining sitting at the airport waiting for, oh, the runway is free, jump in the airplane, we're going now. (laughs) I'm sure that's how it worked, right? It's totally, they're like, you're ready to go. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I'm sure. So what I would love to know as well is, I feel like it's not the classic master degree and dissertation topic no. you chose so how did you choose this topic and how then it did you end up in the philippines yeah it's uh so it wasn't actually my original topic so i picked my original topic on organizational culture so my background's in marketing and communications i spent 15 years working corporate and ended up pursuing this master's in communications and i was actually going to do a study for the organization i was working for and I realized, um, having gone through the master's and just chatting with my with my thesis advisor, that a lot of research ends up on a shelf and mm-hmm. doesn't end up in like regular population or you don't really gain, you know, maybe life insight. And so my advisor at the time was like, this is your master's is actually a really great opportunity to do something really risky. It's not like a PhD where your whole career is like hinging on it. So they were like, try something different. And I'm a photographer um, as well. And so I was like, well, I'm going to go do some National Geographic thing is kind of what I thought, right? Uh, And so I started doing research and I uh, stumbled across an American that actually lives in the Philippines and does really amazing photography on a lot of the indigenous population there. So I reached out to him actually, and he recommended this location. And so there's a lot of moving parts when you're doing international research, but not to mention like my school didn't back it. They didn't have an in there. Right. So it's not that they didn't back it. They supported it, but they didn't have an in there. Right. So I had to do all of that Mm -hmm. legwork myself, reaching out to him. And then he recommended there was a university there that I could talk to. And it kind of all just fell into place, which is really weird other than like hiccups along the way of getting into the field and and all of that. But um, it actually all came together pretty well considering there is a lot of, um, I, I booked my ticket to the Philippines without having full approval into that particular area because it's remote, because it's indigenous. 
um, and it's an endangered area in the Philippines, you have to get all these different clearances and you can't get those until you're in country. So I actually booked my flight, jumped on a plane, praying and hoping that I would get all the clearances I could. But I also had multiple backup plans, which my advisor recommended, like just having mm-hmm. a bunch of different ideas so that if you don't get into the field, you can quickly pivot and um, do something different. But it all worked out for me. So it was great. Yeah. So uh, I imagine once you landed in the actual remote area, most probably it was not only a culture shock, if we want to call it that way for you, but most probably also for the people, because I imagine that not a lot of foreigners ever go to this area if it's like this really remote place with no real like tourism or whatnot. Right. Totally. Yeah. uh, Landing was like, a again, a massive eye opener because you Uh, and I write about this in my book is like, basically, you're flying in on this tiny little plane, and you're looking down, like, where is this runway? And it's this really short runway nestled between like the ocean and the rainforest. Like, it's just carved out. And it's just um, asphalt, basically, and not super paved or well kept. And so there's tons of bumps. So I just I remember getting out of the plane, and I was the only white person on the flight, obviously. And it's basically just a cement building with a police officer or some type of authority there and you go over and you have to say your name, but you have to like the the village isn't there. You have to find a ride to come and get you. Um, And it was just, I remember everyone like looking at me, like who is this person? And Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was, it was definitely a shock to the system for sure. And then we had prearranged a driver to come get us um, the mayor's um, son. So or the mayor's brother-in-law, sorry, had come in. Wow. Uh, yeah, the late mayor, I should say. He was um, assassinated, actually. So, oh, yeah. Well, so then you arrived there, and I'm sure everyone is very curious now on what did you actually do in that area? Because I imagine there's not like the usual research things where you talk to all the people and then you have like proper studies on whatever. But what did you do with the people there and what was your kind of like findings from the area, which you then later even transformed in the book, what you already mentioned? Yeah, so I did what we call a visual ethnography. So basically it's um, using my photography and really experiencing the life there. So I didn't actually specifically stay in Makwanakwan is where I landed. Um, I then stayed one night there and then woke up the next morning and we wait in the town square to catch what they call a kaliglig, which I say is a cross between a tractor and a wagon, <laughs> some <laughs> makeshift thing. And you wait in the town square to jump on that. And then I traveled about an hour and a half uh, to a river called the Blos River. So my book is actually called Life Near the Blows. And right near that river, Um, is a school Uh, uh, and so I actually stayed at the school and then I ventured out from there to the different villages there was villages all around and Mm -hmm. essentially what I was trying to um, learn or understand was their way of living and the way that they um, were were currently um, getting food water that sort of thing because what was happening in that region was very controversial. They were looking to build a road that connected that particular region to what I call um, 
like mainland, even though it's not mainland because it's an island, mm-hmm. but it, but to the rest of Luzon, basically. Um, and they were doing that for ecotourism. So for people like you and I to go there and vacation, the beaches there were some of the most untouched, beautiful beaches I've ever experienced in my entire life. Um, and they wanted to develop those for tourism. And so these people's lives are at risk for a lot of different reasons. Um, and so I wanted to go there and just sort of observe and give these people a voice of like, do they want the road? Do they not want the road? But I had to do that in a very um, neutral sort of way because it was very controversial. The two mayors prior to me arriving had been assassinated for this very reason. So, wow. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned in the beginning, like a risky topic in a risky journey. Now I feel like everyone gets why. Yeah. This was not an easy thing where you're like, oh, there are amazing beaches. Let me go to this island in the Philippines, which I feel like a lot of people have in their head when totally. they think about the Philippines. I'm sure yeah. what you mentioned, the beaches are amazing. Even the ones I went to in the very touristic areas are amazing, yeah. let alone the ones which are untouched with no tourists. So you came there and you mentioned that you had a translator. What is the language the people are speaking in that particular area in the Philippines? Yeah, so the um, the they're speaking Agta or a dialect of Agta or Ilocano. So Tagalog is the main language or the most popular language. My translator spoke English, Tagalog, uh, Ilocano, and then Agta, the various dialects. So it depends on the village, depends on the people. They have their own unique one. So I hired a translator who could speak Ilocano to one of the guides. So you have to have a guide when you're in that area um, who's a local guide who has uh, permission to bring you into these villages. So that was part of it as well as every time I went into a village, I had to get the um, barangay captains or uh, approval to be there to ask their people questions and just to be in their presence. So, Yeah, I, I can imagine that like, As you said, you are you were the only white person, most probably not only in the airplane, but on the entire island. So how yeah. did you manage to connect with these people? Because I imagine it's so hard to kind of like get actual like quote real answers from these people because it's such a sensitive topic. And most probably a lot of people are afraid to speak up if they are against the road or pro the road or how did that all work out? Yeah, and I love, I absolutely love this question because I think that research in general or foreign research for sure uh, can be done so wrong. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so a lot of my uh, way of making a connection was just, I actually went into those communities, introduced myself, sat with them, ate with them, had tea with them uh, mm-hmm. before asking any questions. I remember being there for about a week and a half and my camera never even came out at that point. It wasn't until I had um, been there and spent time with them. And a week doesn't really sound that long, but when you're kind of engaging with them and I have a a really good connection with kids, I I can play with them in the schoolyard for hours. And that was one of the things that uh, one of the teachers had mentioned was how the parents were noticing that I was out playing jump rope with them. They don't have jump rope. They use Mm -hmm. elastic bands to do jump rope, but uh, I was out with the kids playing catch or ball or whatever. And so that's what, uh, how they started to really trust me. But I also 
went to the river and fished with them. And I wanted to learn about their life before I started asking any of the controversial questions. And I did it in a way, even when I did ask them, if I felt they were uncomfortable in any way, um, we didn't carry on with it. I didn't force or push, you know, my own agenda onto them. I wanted to be as Mm -hmm. open as possible. And I think that's just who I am. And so that I think that was how I was able to form a connection was just really getting to know them. They said it it was so interesting for them because not a lot of foreigners come in wanting to go fishing with them or like I went rice plant like rice planting with them and Mm -hmm. my guide and his friends were sitting there laughing because it's not easy planting (laughs) rice is not easy and they couldn't believe that I wanted to get in the rice fields and plant rice and so I think that really helped them uh, trust me was like I just wanted to do the things they were doing even though some of them were like really hard (laughs) like fishing and planting rice. I'm sure, especially for you and me, yeah. because we're not fishing on a totally. daily basis, right? Let yeah. alone with most probably the equipment they have. It's, I'm sure, not advanced. Like, it not works for them. Yeah. But like, but I love that you try to connect with the people because I totally agree with you that so many people just go to a foreign country and be, you know, are even tourists. They just go to the five-star hotel in whatever, Egypt or totally. somewhere else. And just stay in the five-star hotel, all-inclusive, and then go on that one trip, which is organized from the hotel in this totally touristic area. So they're not even trying to connect with the people in the area, which I always try to do, I mean, as much as possible, whenever I go somewhere to the places. So I'm sure this really changed your way of thinking about most probably all the things in life, right? Totally. Yeah. It was so, so eye-opening in so many different ways. And I, and I even say in my book, I had a hard time writing the book per se, because I didn't want to get their story or message wrong. So I actually took the angle of my own voice in it because I felt I could represent myself better than Mm -hmm. I could represent them. Um, And it, and it is so true that, you know, I've been to tons of all inclusives in Mexico and Dominican and Jamaica, and it's just, and then the day tours and stuff like that. And, and this definitely did open my eyes to just better understanding and that what we see in these curated experiences, like all inclusives aren't really what's going on behind the scenes. And so you talk to, I'm sure a lot of people there, what were like the biggest eye-openers or the craziest stories or the very like amazing stories you heard from them which you didn't expect before you went there that's a great question I think (laughs) I yeah I you know I think um I think I thought they would have more like very solid answers around happiness and so one Mm -hmm. of the questions I asked them was like how happy are you in your current you know life da 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 and that was one that like stumped them they didn't understand what I was even getting at they're like what do you mean why wouldn't we be happy you know and so what that really made me think was this what I live in Canada this very privileged life that I I create my own unhappiness with whether it's bitching about traffic or whatever it is, right? This, because they couldn't understand. They're like, I have food on the table. I have this community with family and friends. Like, why wouldn't I be happy, you know? And so that was one really big eye-opener for me was, you know, the simple things. And and don't get me wrong, their life is not this idyllic life of like full-on happiness. There's lots of poverty and marginalization there, but it was, it was, just that representation of like what does make 
people happy, what what does um, give them a sense of fulfillment and joy. And to them, it was just sort of like the simple things of getting food on the table and, and being with family. So that was a big eye opener for me, mm-hmm. that question. And I had to reframe it um, because they just didn't understand it. And I didn't want to obviously steer the question. Um, and so Melody, my translator was like, they don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> um, so that was a big, big eye opener for me. And then in terms of like, um, resiliency was another big one. Like I, I didn't realize how resilient as humans we could be, even for myself. Like I slept in a school for six, eight, close to eight weeks. Um, and at night, I mean, you could hear the rats running above me. Right. And so when I think back now, I'm like, how did I ever do that? I, there was no running water, no flush toilets, none of that. I hauled my own water for showers. They were freezing cold. And it was like, I I did it, you know, and so it was just, I think the resiliency was a big one and just being able to see how resilient we are as humans. Um, And another big one is just in terms of how our, our privileged life has changed the way we are as humans, like just in terms of our body, Um, they could run across these rocks. So with like, so agile, and I'm like, <laughs> you know, cautiously <laughs> trying to walk across them. And they'd, they would squat down along the river and sit down on the river rocks for like hours. They slept on them in the d- different seasons and lean tos. And I remember sitting there for like 20 minutes and my body hurt, you know. And so it was interesting over time, my body eventually started to get used to just their different, like, you know, getting in that click leg and stuffing myself in there or sitting on rocks and and eventually my body um actually felt really good <laughs> yeah wow this sounds amazing because i i just can totally relate i'm like oh wow that's true like we are yeah. complaining about too many things totally <laughs> like, not putting someone in cc for instance in an email that's my favorite example it doesn't matter no it doesn't matter <laughs> right not no. at all no Um, so it's been a while since you've been there in the remote area. Do you know if the road has been built or do you know any updates from the region, what they did in the meantime? Yeah, that's a great question as well. Um, I do. So my researcher or my translator has continued to do uh, research in that area um, and they have built the road. So it was, it was Mm. almost, yes. And, and a lot of the people have been displaced. So one of the areas that I went to, I actually slept in like a mangrove, like up in like a tree house, basically in one of the Mm -hmm. areas, it was one of the most stunning, beautiful places. And that area, they basically lived on the beaches, caught lobster, caught uh, shrimp, river shrimp, squid, everything. And they've all been displaced to what they call like the town center So it is quite sad in terms of development, things take a lot longer in third world countries and whatnot to get to develop. So like resorts and stuff aren't built by any stretch, Mm -hmm. but they have been started to be displaced, which is sad. And Melody has mentioned to me that lots has changed since I've been there. So um, it is, you know, I get economic development and I get that. I just, it's, it is sad to see um, these people's lives completely like uprooted especially for the Agta who speak a very different dialect. And so ecotourism is great for like Ilocanos or, you know, but for Agta, they're, they're indigenous. And so it's, it's, it would be hard for them to learn English than Mm -hmm. Ilocano, right? So yeah, it is, it is sad for sure. 
Totally. So are you planning, I mean, I'm not sure how easy it is to actually go back, but are you planning to go back one day and see it yourself? I would love to go back. I, um, you know, when I left, I had such high hopes of going back even like within mm-hmm. a year, right? And I wanted to bring even like my spouse or like a couple friends, you know, just to experience it. It is a really tough region to get into. It might be easier now um, mm-hmm. with the road because it's probably just you can get a car and, and go. Um, but if there isn't, like for us, there wasn't, there aren't hotels there. There aren't like public accommodation, right? So you had to had to have a had to have an inn or make connection in that region to stay. Okay. Like I had to make a connection with the school to stay at the school and I had to make a connection to stay at the mayor's brother-in-law's house, right? There was just nowhere to stay. Um so it, it is a difficult place to definitely travel to or was when I was there, but I would love to go back. Um, but I also am a bit scared too, in some ways too, because I think I'll be, you know, heartbroken in a way uh, mm. if I just to see the transformation. But yeah, yeah, I'm sure. So, and one point I really want to touch on too is, so when you left this area, I'm sure what we already mentioned that it completely changed your view on the world and most probably also on Canada. Did you have something like a reverse culture shock when you came back to Canada? I absolutely did. Uh, when I left, a lot of people had talked about uh, having culture shock when you were there. And I'm, and I know that I did and experienced some culture shock while I was in country, but I experienced the worst reverse culture shock when I got home. Um, I remember getting home and I think I slept for like about four days. Um, <laughs> I was tired, obviously, and, mm-hmm. and the time change and everything, but I've traveled to like India, I've traveled to Thailand, and I've never been that white coming home um, and sleeping for basically a whole weekend and then I was like bitter and resentful because the complaints like traffic complaints or you know the CC complaint is just like those really triggered me and irritated me to points that I had never had before because I just Mm -hmm. looked at our privilege and how privileged we are and just being able to flick on a light switch or have a warm shower and just the little things that we take for granted so I totally did. It probably lasted, I would say, almost like one to two months. And I remember someone saying, wow. like, you're Canadian. So stop dissing Canadians, you know, and and, and it just was because I, I started to realize, you know, some of the things that we, we take for granted, for sure. So how about, um, I'm sure that, I mean, I experienced it in a, obviously not at all your way and in that depth, but since I was traveling a lot and when I came back from Ghana, yeah, I had the same experience where I was like, why is everyone acting so weird back home and like why are we complaining what's happening and it really I had similar experience like dragged me down and I was mad at everyone I'm like you guys have water you guys have a house like why are you even complaining so for everyone who experienced it maybe now I mean maybe not now because we can't travel but for everyone who's going to a remote place after the world is back open do you have any tips or tricks on how to kind of level set your brain again because obviously you can't keep on going like this with the reverse culture shock because it just destroys yourself too and like how do you handle it right now after some years yeah I think for me it's just like the same understanding that I that I want to try to understand when I go to a foreign culture and immerse myself in what in their life is having the same sort of like compassionate understanding because a lot of people I know haven't you know they've gone to all inclusives right and they Mm -hmm. haven't they haven't ventured out to 
I mean, I did a habitat build in India and, you know, so I, I, I've gone to these places and lived in these remote communities or third world countries and, and, and experienced it. And so I try to come back with that understanding of like, you know, they, they just haven't experienced it and they just don't get it or understand it. And then until you live it, you just don't know. Right. Um, and this is their reality is the other big one is like, I'm like, this is their current reality and I can't change that. I can just, I have to focus on myself and what I can do and try to live a life um, with that gratitude and just knowing how privileged I am. And I hope that attitude then um, can go out into the world and, and, and change things for sure. But it's just, yeah, it did take time for sure to, to level out and to not be that bitter. I don't think being bitter or resentful really is um, productive. Right. So it's totally. just, being open and trying to understand where they're they're coming from and in that moment when they're complaining that's their current reality so (laughs) well this is such great advice honestly because it's so hard to handle these situations where you're like honestly there's no problem however in the reality I'm currently in it is a problem right yeah just because someone it's you know it's so hard to like I think you're most probably also one of the people who want to change the world yeah. like generally <laughs> yeah which we can do to a certain extent if, yeah. if everybody does something there's a really great progress however we can save the world maybe that's a better term yeah. even though we want to and I had so many discussions with my family members and also with friends who are very close to me because I got so frustrated that I can't save everyone or that I can't help everyone that in the end I didn't help myself too because I was so worked up and I'm like I really want to build this how to be global to really save everyone and open everyone's eyes and why is everyone not everyone but why are so many people racist and I want to change their mind and I had to realize it was a hard realization that I can't I cannot change the mind of a racist I can only change the mind of a racist if the person is open to actually changing their mind. 100%. <laughs> Which is the hardest thing ever because, I'm sh- I mean, you experience it even much, much more than I did. And you see, hey, there's so much out there in the world which is beautiful and heartbreaking at the same time. So why do you hate foreigners? Why do you hate people from other cultures? They're just human beings like you and I. Totally. Totally. And it's, I love that you, that you say that is like the whole saving the world. And I can't, I remember um, being in a grad class and one of the teachers asked what we wanted to do. And it was communication for social change was the um, course. And he, and I said, I want to save the world. And he looked at me and he said, that's really naive. And I was like crushed. I was like, yeah, you're like, no, I want to save the world. He's like, that's naive. He's like, you can't. And I was, and I remember thinking like, what are you talking about? I'm going to save the world, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. you can't, right. You, you have to, you can't change somebody's mind. As you mentioned, they have to be willing to do that and open. And if you're open and doing what you're doing, um, you're going to impact people. You just aren't, you can't impact the entire world. Yeah, it's it's hard, um, yeah. especially because the past year I realized the privilege I have because I was growing up in Germany. I'm a white person and yeah. all these different angles. And then you get so frustrated. But then at the end of the day, you realize, well, you that's just a fact. You can't change it. The only thing you can do is use the privilege you have to help others to get privileged too, or that things, you know, that privilege is non-existent in however many years anymore out there in the world. 
totally. And I felt so guilty coming home, so guilty writing a book, because I was coming back to my privileged life, you know, my leather lazy boy recliner, my heated Mm -hmm. house, all of that. And I grew up in a very um, white community. I mean, I think there was not a ton of diversity where I grew up in Canada. And Mm -hmm. I privilege and status became so apparent when I was in India I noticed it for sure Um, but the Philippines was like crazy how much that's just the tears and just how privileged I was people moving out of the way at a grocery store to let me in first in line like they were all in line probably six people and they just moved out as soon as I walked up and I was like (laughs) oh yeah and it's because I'm I'm white and I and I don't think I realized and it was hard it's really hard um to like for me to accept but now I'm like that's way harder for you guys you know the the you know the racism and stuff that you guys face is is yeah I have I have no understanding of it I guess (laughs) yeah totally Yeah, yeah I have a question I ask every single podcast guest, and the question is, what does how to be global mean for you? Oh, that's a good one. I think for me, like how to be how to be global is not just um, like understanding that we live in a global world, but is is really going out and experiencing different cultures. Maybe it's hiring people from a different country, um, really just going out and experiencing and coming from a place of understanding and really trying to learn what other people are. I think that our diversity is what makes us so beautiful. Um, And so just really embracing that diversity and going out and learning as much as we can about this beautiful world that we live in. So I love it. That's amazing. So thank you so much, Catherine, for sharing your insights. I mean, it was a quick episode and I'm sure you have a ton of more stories to share, but I would love for you to kind of tell the people where they can find you online, where they can buy your book and how they can connect with you. Yeah, for sure. So uh, currently I'm a conversion copywriter uh, storyteller for online entrepreneurs. So you can find me at creatively owned uh, either on Instagram LinkedIn is Katherine Thompson, Twitter, uh, Facebook, and or you could email me at Catherine at creativelyowned.com. My book is called Life Near the Blows, and it, it's available actually on Amazon. Uh, so you can actually do just a quick Google search there. So if you want it, or if you want to reach out to me, I can send you a link as well. So. That's great. We're going to link all of uh, the things you just said in the show notes so people can click on it and connect with you. And thanks again for sharing your insight. I love the conversation and it's so great to kind of connect with like-minded people who are also coming from a very privileged world and then experience something else and now are trying to help save the world. We're still trying it, right? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Well, it's been my pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you.